This episode of the Case Podcast is sponsored by O'Reilly Software Architecture Conferences, three of which will take place again in 2020. The first one in New York, the second one in Santa Clara, California, and the third one again in Berlin in November. Um, it's one of my favorite conferences, and I'm really looking forward to meeting some of you there. You can find out more at O'ReillySACon.com slash EU, and you'll also get 20% off your purchase price by using the code CASE, that's C-A-S-E. So welcome listeners to a new episode of the CASE podcast, another conversation about software engineering. This is Stefan Tilkov, and my guest today is Ryan Singer. Hi, Ryan. Hi there. Um, as usual, I would like you uh, to start us off by introducing yourself. Sure. I have been working at Basecamp for 16 years now. I started off doing UI design and basically you know, web design, uh, which I think kind of meant something different you know, that many years ago also. <laughs> um, uh, so I started off doing, you know, very much just thinking about what should be on the screen and, and, and what are the flows going to be for a user to click through. And then when uh, David created Rails as part of producing the first version of Basecamp, that was kind of the first chance that I could really get closer into the programming side of things. I had tried to learn programming many times when I was younger and I had always dabbled in it, but was never able to get very far. And then Rails made it much more accessible to me. So I went from there to kind of combining UI skill set with the programming skill set. And that kind of naturally positioned me to start to play this kind of a bridge role between these two sides of the universe uh, inside the company. We released the first version of Basecamp in 2004, early 2004. And through the years, uh, our challenges grew, you know, our technical challenges grew and then also taking on more people and, and taking on more, you know, uh, doing more with more people. And, uh, I became interested in how to take a lot of the things that I was excited about that I was learning from the software community, you know, about how to tame complexity and how to separate concerns and, and, and things like that, and how to apply that up at a higher level to how we do product development and how we think about kind of bringing design and, and programming together uh, at a higher level. And so that became my focus. And then these days I'm doing mainly strategy. So I'm kind of combining this, this background in knowing how to make things that work from a front end and back end perspective with uh, figuring out what's important, what matters to customers, what's competitive, competitively meaningful for us to do right now and kind of figure out where we stand and, and where we should go next. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can you give those listeners who don't know um, the company and the product a very brief description of what Basecamp actually is? Yeah, so uh, Basecamp grew out of our own experience and the, the, the problems that we had early on that we created Basecamp to solve are, are the same problems that many of our customers have today, our new customers who come to the product. Basically, if you're trying to do some kind of a project with a team, and especially if you are either remote or there's some sort of a time shift between you or distance between you, uh, then what happens is you have a lot of emails, you have some chat over here, some Google Drive documents over there, some tasks in some other system. And all these, all these 
things, this information is scattered in different systems and then things easily get lost or slip through the cracks. And Basecamp takes everything that a project team needs to know to work together. So all their discussions, all their notes, and all the tasks and milestones and deadlines and so on, and centralizes that in one place. And it's very, very easy to use. So regardless of the role of the people who are involved, everyone can participate. So it basically allows project teams to communicate and centralize everything so nothing gets lost. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of the things I've noticed over the years, and I'm sure many people have noticed, is that you're very open about the things that you do at Basecamp and you you use multiple opportunity or every opportunity to um, uh, share some of the things that you do internally. And that's actually the reason we're having this podcast right now because one of the newest things that you folks have shared is your internal development methodology, if that's what one could call it. It's called Shape sure. Up. Mm-hmm. So um, that's going to be the topic of this of this podcast. Um, before we dive into the details of that particular method, I'm, I'm very curious to find out um, what did you try before and what did you not like about it? So when we when we started, it was just three of us. And you know how it is when you are working on a really small team. You don't need that much formal structure. Mm-hmm. You know, you have so much happens organically and just through understanding and everybody knows everything and there's a lot of overlap in your roles so we didn't really need much structure in the beginning. However, we did have some very strong principles and and some really tight constraints. When we did the first version of Basecamp, uh, David worked 10 hours a week only, and he was the only programmer. So we had to be very, very judicious about what do we choose to do? What are we going to do next? How far do we go? You know, is there a way to make this this piece of the product work doing much, much less, you know, so that we could keep moving because we had so little of David's time. So from the beginning, we had that in place. I was exposed to the early agile movement through David, and we were big fans. I think even the first book about Rails was called Agile Web Development with Rails, mm-hmm. something like it that. Was. Yeah. And <laughs> so the spirit of Agile was very much alive in what we were doing and 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 um you know big fans of 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 kent beck's work and 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 all of that stuff at the same time we never even went down the road of of what's now become kind of off the shelf agile um this sort of scrum type thing where you have two week sprints and and some kind of a queue of 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 work that you then groom into these sprints and so on we never even got into that because we could see we could see that two weeks was not enough time to get something meaningful done. And we've also always kind of been resistant to having some sort of a cue that we work off of. We much prefer to work based on what's in front of our noses or or the the eureka from the shower yesterday than than a, than a stale cue or some kind of a backlog. So there's always been some resistance to those things. At the same time, we didn't know how to articulate what it was that we were doing. We were just kind of trying to do what felt natural and and what made sense to us. And so we've experimented a lot um, over the years with how do we how do we take some of the the key things that we figured out from our early principles and from early exposure to the to the I don't know what you call it, like the the original agile or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. really, for example, things like 
having a fixed time box and variable scope, you know, these very basic things. We experimented, experimented with those in different ways. And as we met challenges of different sizes, then we had to kind of grow our capability to meet those challenges. So for example, in, in we shipped the verse, first version of Basecamp in 2004. By the time it was 2009, I think we had already released a handful of different products. We had separate username and, and password databases and, and separate billing for each product. And we wanted to unify all of that. And this was a big project we called 37ID. And this, this kind of really challenged us to start to step up how we, how we manage our product development work. And when that moment came, we didn't actually reach for any existing methodology. We already started to experiment with our own ideas. And this was the first time where I had this, I had learned from the software side of things and from getting more deeply involved in the programming about things like factoring. And I wanted to try out this idea. Well, what if we could do what we, what we call factoring in the code at a higher level to, to product? So take whole pieces of functionality, both front end and back end, and, and kind of decouple them from each other and isolate them from each other and then figure out which ones to work on as, as vertical slices. And uh, so I think for people who, who have a deep background in Agile, this won't be a, a new idea, but, but we were pursuing that and trying it in different ways, sort of without, without following any, any sort of script or, or any, any system that had been worked out from anyone else, you know, and then we made plenty of mistakes along the way, but, but also we, it really worked really well, actually, that project. And when it was time then to, to redesign Basecamp from scratch, we did that with Basecamp 2 in 2012. Then we took a lot of those practices even further and introduced a few new things that we were experimenting with. And then by the time that it was 2015, when we were redesigning, uh, doing Basecamp 3, by then we had hired even more people and had met some different problems. And this is where we we're doing quite well with this thing, but there were still things that we hadn't articulated yet. So a lot of shape up comes from taking all these years of trial and error and finally kind of putting language to them. So talking about things like, what does it mean to shape? What does it mean that we make a bet? How is it that we sort of are more deliberate about making our commitments and, and uh, especially dealing with the different types of unknowns and things that come up in the course of executing a project, you know, the language of uphill and downhill and the hill chart and so on. All these different things were just an attempt to articulate what we had been doing kind of intuitively, but then you reach a certain scale where you actually need to be able to say, this is how we do it and, and, and have some language together for it. And by doing that, we were able to talk with the people inside of Basecamp and the, the newer people we had hired about how we work and it also opened up this opportunity to speak more broadly to the industry about these things. So, so, so that's that's kind of why this this sort of where the book came from now. Mm -hmm. So you're offering the book for free. Um, it's it's uh, I don't know. Is it open source or I mean, it's free to read? I don't know whether whether it's not there's open a printed source, version. But it's, yeah. So we will be having probably a, a printed version and audio edition and so on, but this was really a kind of a shipping strategy and a prototyping strategy. So mm -hmm. I've been making some pretty significant updates to the book, not in the main ideas, but in things that uh, people are asking about that, that we didn't think to explain, you know? So 
Uh, so the book, we have been making updates to it and, you know, the, the web is just a much more malleable medium than print. You, mm-hmm. If you have to, if you have to send a book out to print, then you have a really long night of thinking, okay, did I, did I fix every typo? Is it really ready or not? And, uh, publishing it as a website just gave us that freedom of like, okay, no big deal. If we miss something, we fix it tomorrow, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and now we're at a point where, uh, there's, it's been received really well and also, there's been enough back and forth where I'm, I'm hearing the main questions that keep coming up again and again. So mm-hmm. working on making some updates to it, and then we'll get to a point where we're ready for a print edition before long. Okay. So let's, let's dive right into it. And uh, maybe we can start by um, you giving us the 60 second version of what shape up is about. Yeah. So shape up is basically about the three phases of work that we have to go through. We are describing the actual process that we use to do product development. So there's some very specific techniques that we use. But at the same time, we're talking about all that in terms of what we see are the basic facts of the universe. There's certain basic truths. And for example, work doesn't come from nowhere. Uh, If you want to do a project, then someone has to define that project. And if you go through this process of what we call shaping the work, then you take a raw idea, a suggestion from a customer or something that comes down from maybe, uh, maybe the founder has a, has a, has a great idea all of a sudden, you know, or something comes in from sales, whatever it is, there's all these raw inputs. And if we just sort of act on them and turn them into a project, say, go build it, then we are giving the team a task that isn't well-defined enough. And so we can't expect to have a good result. On the other hand, if we, and this is what's happening in a lot of agile teams, by the way, uh, leadership isn't making decisions about really what to do and where they think the win is. And they're saying, okay, let's go sort of, by, you know, chew away at it, peck away at it two weeks at a time and hope that we figure it out. We, we want to be more deliberate about it than that. And then at the same time, if we go to the other extreme, which is sort of the, 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 the old waterfall extreme, then we're specifying too much up front. So what we want to do is we have to define the work somehow. And so the book is a lot of strategies for how to shape the work at the right level of abstraction and with the right amount of latitude in it so that there's certain, we improve our odds and we improve our confidence for whether or not this piece of work can get done in the period of time that we allow. But at the same time, we're also giving the teams more latitude, more autonomy, more room to self-manage within those constraints as they fill that in and figure out what the work actually is. So, so first of all, we talk about shaping. And a big piece of shaping is the notion that we don't start with a design and then give it an estimate and then slice it up and work at it, let's say, two weeks at a time. Instead, we actually start with what we call an appetite. So rather than saying, how long do we think this is going to take? We want to say, how much time is this worth to us? Strategically, how much time do we, are we interested in spending on this particular thing? And then we, instead of having a design and then a number, we start with a number and then come up with a design. What's a design that's fitting to this appetite? There's some version of this idea that we could execute in that period of time. So that's, that's the first third of the book is shaping. The second third is betting. So this is where we take some shaped concept and this is some kind of a potential project that we could do that we've removed more risk from and we've done enough definition on that we know what we're betting on. And we use the language of betting because we want to talk about risk rather than talking about certainty. 
a lot of planning activities and scheduling activities that people perform are under the assumption that things are going to go the way that you think, right? And mm-hmm. um, they don't. <laughs> as as, <laughs> as anybody who has you know some background in agile knows this as a principle, but how do we actually act on it in a better way? So one of the big big things that we do is we cap our downside. So we use the language of betting because a bet is where you put a certain amount of money on the table and either you win or you lose, but you never lose more than the amount of money that you put down, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, software development should be like this. So if we say that we think a certain project is worth spending six weeks on, then if we get to the end of that six weeks and the project doesn't succeed, we don't automatically reinvest. We don't give it more time. By default, we stop the project, we walk away from it, and we do something else. Because there was some kind of a problem in that work if it didn't finish. And we don't want to just keep throwing you know, bad money after good or, or, or bad time after good. And it, it's a crazy universe if the amount that you bet starts to multiply in front of your face. That's, that's not something we want to be doing. So rather, we want to say, wait a minute, something went wrong there. Let's do something else in the next six weeks that we understand, that we have more confidence in, that we feel good about betting on. And uh, if we really feel like we need to go back and do that thing that didn't work out, let's let's do some more shaping work to figure out how we can approach it differently, so that we can we believe we can be confident that we'll succeed if we if we give it another swing. So this is really important. We call this principle the circuit breaker. You know that it's it's a it allows us to manage that risk so that projects don't run away from us and start taking longer than they're actually worth in the first place. And then the third the third part part of the book is building and. The, there's two main things we're doing different there. The first is that we are not assigning tasks to, pro, to to teams. So we're not taking a project and putting it through the paper shredder and shredding it into separate tasks and then queuing those up in some kind of a in some kind of a plan for teams to to take. So there's no stories or cards or anything like that. We're giving the whole project to the team that the whole shaped project. So there's boundaries for the team about basically what to do and what not to do and the main outlines of the solution. But then the team has total latitude to actually discover and capture and track what the real tasks are. And we can talk about that more, this difference between the work that you imagine you have to do and then the work that you discover you actually have to do once you lift up the hood and and get your hands dirty and start to get in there and, and, and find out what all the interdependencies really are that you couldn't see in advance, right? And then finally, rather than tracking what's complete and what's incomplete and managing time during the course of a six-week cycle, um, we are asking the teams to really think more about what's known and what's unknown, because this is where the real danger is. If you have some work and you can very, very clearly see in the palm of your hand exactly what's left, then it's not so difficult to estimate and Maybe it takes a little longer than you think, but there's not a big mystery involved. However, if you get deep into a project and there's something that you actually don't know how to solve, or there's something that you think you know how to do, but you haven't actually gotten your hands dirty and started to to, to look at what's what it's really going to take or, or, or tried to spike it yet, those unknowns can turn out to be something you think is going to take a day, can turn out to take a week, or something you were sure was going to be possible can turn out to be have no clear solution, right? And so there's a vast difference in, in these different risk profiles of whether you know what to do or whether you haven't actually figured it out yet. So 
that's how we do the tracking of the work. And we, and we introduce a lot of tools and language for that, mainly the, the hill chart and the difference between uphill and downhill work. So those are really kind of the three things. How do we, how do we define the work better at the right level of abstraction? How do we give the work to teams by making bets that have very, very clear deadlines with a circuit breaker so that they don't run away from us and we don't spend more than our appetite? We work rather than in short two-week sprints, which is not enough time to actually get anything done. Uh, we work in longer cycles that are six weeks long with a two-week cool down in between. And then while the teams are building, they have full responsibility for discovering the actual tasks. They manage their own tasks and they're mainly dealing with unknowns and knowns rather than percent complete or trying to track velocity or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think I've under understood the three phases of the whole thing. Can you give me, can you map them onto the timeline for me? If it's six weeks and two weeks, does the shaping happen in parallel to other six week things or is it, or ha does it happen in the two week pause between two six week slices? Yeah, so the The, the book is mainly written from the perspective of our current scale. Mm -hmm. Right now, Basecamp is around 50 people in the whole company, and the product team is around a dozen people. Mm -hmm. At our current size, you can specialize. You know, you can have somebody who is dedicated to thinking about shaping all the time, right? So, and you can have separate people who are, who are executing. So that's a kind of luxury we have at our current scale. So right now, um, I can be I can be thinking about projects to shape, and I can be doing the shaping work just on an ongoing basis. Uh, and and Jason, the founder and CEO, he's kind of the last word on product at Basecamp. He does the same. So the two of us are mainly doing the shaping work. And from my point of view, uh, the we're we're inside of a six week cycle right now. The end of that cycle is going to come, and then during the two weeks where we have this cool down period between cycles in the cool down, there's no scheduled work of any kind. So people um, are still productive, but they don't, they're not being told what to do. Mm -hmm. And this allows people to do things like fix small bugs, make tweaks to the, to the, to the way that they coded things before that they have a better idea about investigate a new library, uh, connect with people from another team. All, all those different things can happen in cool down. But the main thing that happens in, in cool down is we hold this, so-called betting table where we can decide what to do in the next six weeks. And I just need to bring some kind of uh, shaped idea, uh, maybe one or two good shaped ideas to the table so that we have something meaningful to do uh, in the next six weeks. And mm -hmm. at our current size that we can do these as totally parallel tracks. So shaping can be completely parallel to building. And then in the cool down, we kind of have this this betting table where we decide what to do and that's how the work gets passed on and that's how these sort of streams cross of course when you're smaller everybody just does everything you know and and even the six weeks and the two week structure doesn't really work well when you're really small because you might have a founder and and uh who's maybe a, maybe you have a you know like in basecamp's case jason was a designer david was a programmer And I was there as, an, as, as, as a designer as well. And when you just have a few people trying to get started on something, you need to do a little bit of shaping so that you know what it is that you're actually going to do next so that you know what you're taking on. But then you might, you might take on, you might say, oh, we're going to shape something for that takes us three weeks and then build that out. And then, and then now the thing is built and deployed to your staging server. And now you say, oh, okay, well now we need to shape the next thing. Right. So then 
you're working more in a mode of of alternation and in a mode of wearing different hats and just being conscious of what hat you're wearing rather than you know having these these different different people for the different roles that are working in parallel mm -hmm. okay um do you have more than one um shaped up idea in the build step at any one time or is it just one that you pass to the building stage at our current size we can have we have two what we call core product teams and these are teams of one designer and one or two programmers each and they're working on the main web product and we want to have work for those two teams every cycle so right now we are we want to have at least maybe you know three or four ideas that are shaped for for a given cycle and we talk about we, we have this kind of internal language we say big batch versus small batch and a big batch is like one big thing that's going to take the whole six weeks mm -hmm. so we and we usually want to have at least one big batch project because it's the feeling of making this kind of big big lump of progress on the product you know like there's this big thing that we're going to do and at the end of the cycle there we're going to ship it and the whole product is going to have this this new feature or this new thing you know so this big feeling of like we got over the we made this big movement right and at the same time there's very often a lot of smaller things that we want to do as well and so small batches where we'll we'll slot in kind of a handful of smaller projects maybe maybe there's three or four things that that we think the team could finish within the six weeks and then we're not actually scheduling you know by week two this will be done and by week three that will be done we're just kind of sort of giving the team this small batch as a kind of bag of things uh to do and and then uh it can be good to have you know more than one idea at the, at the betting table because it might be that something that i'm advocating for uh maybe maybe the other people at the table won't want to do so i might want to have more than one idea to present you know mm -hmm. um uh but but the main thing is that we don't have a backlog of any kind we don't have some sort of a long list of things that we've thought of in the past instead anything at the table is being brought by a person and being advocated for by a person because it's contextual and relevant and timely right now and because somebody cares about it so there's going to be a few potential bets at the table mm -hmm. okay so maybe we can go through the three phases individually um and start with the shaping thing first what makes an idea um what, what happens what what stage is an idea in if it enters the stage and what what does it look like when it gets out of that stage well that's a good question so the input to shaping is is a raw idea so this is i use in the book the example of building a calendar in, in Basecamp three we didn't we, we didn't release uh we didn't have a, a visual calendar of any kind in base camp three we had a kind of agenda view of events which was just a list and you couldn't see empty spaces at all in it you just saw a list of, of upcoming events for the project and a lot of we had built calendars in the past for previous versions of base camp they're very time consuming and complicated to build and uh we decided we thought we could go without for base camp three and then customers were writing in the request please can i have a calendar please can you make some sort of a month view uh in base camp three so that's an example of an input to shaping now the problem mm -hmm. is that if we just say okay well let's go do it what we don't know what that means right and uh so 
we have to set some kind of boundaries on that. So what is our appetite for that? How much time do we actually want to spend on this? How much time do we think this is worth strategically? If we really believed that the future of Basecamp was with time management and calendaring and scheduling the work to some degree, we could we could spend a year, you know, building a new mm-hmm. version of Basecamp that's all about calendaring. And on the other hand, uh, if it, we, you know, actually in this case, we knew from past versions of Basecamp that only ten percent of of our customers used the 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 pretty full featured calendar that we had built in Basecamp too. And that calendar took us six months to build. And we knew that we just did not want to spend that six months again. We were not up to that and we weren't interested in that. But we did think, well, if there was something we could do in a six-week project, then maybe that would be useful, right? So this is a case where we are setting our appetite and we're setting our constraints on whether or not we're going to take some kind of an action on this idea. So then the challenge becomes, well, can we come up with some sort of some sort of a concept, some broad outlines of a design or a solution that sort of fits within that six-week constraint. And we didn't have any ideas for that, and so we just didn't do anything about it. Uh, Eventually, we did some customer research, and we talked to some customers, and we were able to determine what it was that they were actually asking about and and why they were asking for a calendar and what circumstance they were in. And by unpacking the struggle they were in, we were able to get kind of clearer design requirements to tell us if we needed to build a tenth of a calendar, which tenth should we build, right? Should it be the high fidelity interaction to to drag an event to the borders of an event between you know uh, hours within a day view, or dragging an event between cells in a month view, or should it be a native calendar on the iPhone app, or or is it more about scheduling the overlap between people's availability to have a meeting or something like that. I mean, there's so many different things we could do. We had to find the right 10th. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually we were able to do that. So then what we what we created was the, the, the shaped version of this looked like a very, very rough hand-drawn sketch that showed how we could solve the problem that we had figured out with a short presentation of the problem a short presentation of our appetite. So this is something we want to do, but we only think we we only want to do it if we can do it within six weeks. We've talked to customers. Here's the understanding of the problem we came up with. Based on that understanding of the problem, here is why we think this is a viable solution. And here is a very, very rough, and this is important, really rough sketch. So we have two sketching techniques I introduced in the book uh, for shaping. One of them is, is called breadboarding. And the other is called fat marker sketch. And both of them are very low fidelity because what we don't want to do is create some kind of a, of a wireframe in advance or some kind of a visual design that has a whole bunch of unnecessary detail that wastes our time up front, locks us into a specific approach that, that isn't necessary and, and takes away latitude and freedom from the design team. You know, so we, we want to give them as much latitude as possible. So we're working, so we're trying to define the work at the right level of abstraction. Mm-hmm. If we define the work in words and we just say, go build a calendar, that's, that's too abstract. But if we define the work in, in high fidelity mockups or wireframes, that's too concrete. So we're, we're defining this, this, this correct level of abstraction to define the work. And then we're also eliminating um, different things that the team might put time into that, that would take too long or, or lead down a rabbit hole. So things not to do 
major holes in the concept, uh, technical things that we've identified that we should avoid because they could just be turned into a big nasty project. Um, all those types of things we're also calling out. And then the end result of this shaping work is if we get to a point where we solve all of these things, then we produce a document that's called a pitch. And the pitch is a potential bet. Mm-hmm. And it presents some shaped work and says, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're not doing. Here's the, here's the sketch. Here's the problem. Here's the appetite. These are the rabbit holes that we're calling out. And, and we see this as a kind of de-risked project or a concept with as much risk removed from it as we can manage upfront. Um, but it is upfront design. And so we are in a way kind of swinging the pendulum back a little bit, you know, with agile, the pendulum swung totally away from upfront design and, and we are bringing that back a little bit, but we're doing it at the right level of abstraction. So what we're giving the team isn't a set of tasks and we're not giving them a perfect bullet list of it must do this and do this and do this in this way and that way. We're giving them more like a guardrails or a kind of fence or a certain boundary of what of what to do and what not to do. But within that, there's a lot of freedom for them to work out what the actual design is and to make all the 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 hundreds and thousands of local decisions and judgments that are necessary to turn it into something real. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure I'm sure at least some agile practitioners would argue that they that they do the same thing um, in with regards to you know, um, defining just enough of what it is that's supposed to be built to uh, to enable people to, you know, make reasonable decisions. But I see that you're putting a different emphasis on the whole thing and you're, you're um, it, with a, I with think, I think with the betting thing, you're, you're really changing something in the, uh, in the dynamics of the whole, of the whole thing, because it's not somebody who has already determined that this is something that's got to be done. You've sort of only made it something that could potentially be done. So I, uh, I understand the yeah, difference, I th- think. That is a difference. And at the same time, it's true that I think a lot of, a lot of the best teams um, are doing some of these things already. And what I'm trying to do in the book is give them language mm-hmm. so that they can describe what they were doing more precisely and then articulate what they did when it went well and, and what they did when it didn't go well. And then we can create contrast between teams that do this and don't. Mm-hmm. So by having the language of shaping, we can do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So two questions regarding shaping. One is, um, what happens if something valuable that you do want to do simply doesn't fit into the six-week cycle? Yeah. So the reason that we take six weeks as a constraint is because we don't believe that we can see further than that. So we have a we. So for example, when we when we built Basecamp 3, we couldn't build Basecamp 3 in six weeks, right? And we, we knew that it would take longer than six weeks to build the whole thing, of course. We, I think we had the idea something like, you know, maybe by this date next year, you know, we'll be able to release it. So we knew that it would take multiple commitments of some kind. However, we, we, we don't trust ourselves to say 12 weeks from now, X will happen or 18 weeks from now, X will happen. We just can't see that far. There's just too many unknowns. So if we have something that we think is going to be worth more than six weeks, still, we have to set some kind of a target, some kind of a, we need to define an endpoint that we can actually see and understand and bet on. 
otherwise we're just guessing and 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 we don't think that we can actually make a bet with good odds mm-hmm. so so it's really a kind of time horizon it's it's some kind of a of a for for me this goes back into the facts of the universe category i think maybe maybe you know of course if you're doing the exact same work that you've done in the past you can maybe estimate longer right what we're, we're what we're talking about here i think this is goes without saying probably is that we're talking about novel things the feature that you've never exactly built that way before right mm-hmm. or you've never built that exact feature before which is where the uh, the where the uncertainty comes from there is a horizon and beyond which you can't really see um and what we want is to put ourselves and we want to put the team in a situation where they're feeling a healthy productive back pressure where from the from the very first day the deadline is kind of pushing on them a little bit so they're already making trade-offs and saying hmm I better start with this instead of that because otherwise we might not finish on time. Mm-hmm. And 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 of course you have that if you work in a really tight time frame if you have like a 2 week period then of course you feel that intensely from the very beginning because the deadline is so close. But two weeks isn't long enough to actually finish something meaningful. So we found that six weeks is more or less the the right number. It's in that neighborhood of, of six weeks. So what we'll do then is we'll carve off some kind of an endpoint of what we think we can reach that would be meaningful. So we say at the end of the six weeks, if we execute this, then then we'll be happy and it will validate our you know belief in this bigger thing and also it will allow us to to make a firm bet because we another aspect of betting is that you hope to get a payoff right so you you want to have a capped downside but you also want to have some kind of a meaningful upside mm-hmm. and so we want to be able to say yeah at the end of the 6 weeks if it goes wrong at most we will have lost 6 weeks but if it goes well we will have reached this this defined end goal that we've shaped and then we can celebrate together and say look it worked and we got there and then and then what we will do is we'll shape the next thing to do subsequently mm-hmm. and we only bet one 6 week period at a time so uh it might take more than one cycle to finish a, a given piece of work but we we don't believe that we can see exactly what that second cycle is going to be until we get the first one done and but we will shape that before we bet on it. So we're not going to just kind of automatically throw another six weeks at something. We're going to stop and say, okay, well, wait a minute now. What does the next week look like in terms of the end of that six weeks? What is it that we think that we're aiming toward? And strategically, are we spending our time on the right thing? And then mm-hmm. we'll shape that and and pursue that and, and then go on like that. Okay. Um, my second question, and hopefully last question regarding shaping is, um, do you actually... Uh, gather user feedback on the idea that you is does that does that help in the next in the next phase the way that we think about this we are just very very skeptical about any type of feedback on something that isn't released it's mm-hmm. so difficult to artificially reproduce the the real world context that creates how do i say this context is what creates value you can't value something unless you're actually in the context so we can we 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 could theoretically show some feature in progress to customers and say do you think this would help you uh but but we just don't believe in that um 
we we believe in 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 releasing something and then allowing customers to actually encounter it in their real life in their real context and then if it works for them we'll really know and if it doesn't work we'll really know and so there's things that we can do to interact with customers to improve our understanding but what i want to do is i want to i want to deepen my understanding of the problem they're in and i want to deepen my understanding of how they're struggling with whatever is presently available to them without the new thing that I'm building. And then we call that the baseline. So if I can really understand what they're doing today without the new thing, how it's going wrong for them, what they, what progress looks like for them, then I see it as our task to, to do the design work and, and the solution work to fill in that, that negative space that we've defined by better understanding the demand side. So we use the language of demand versus supply side. Mm-hmm. I okay. don't think there's a way around uh, uh, sort of taking that risk, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, of, of not really knowing what the solution is and not really knowing if it's going to work. So we'll talk to customers to better frame our understanding, but still the only way I think to really, to really learn is, is to release something. Mm-hmm. So, Then I have a follow-up question. Uh, do you actually take things away again from the product? Because you're taking a risk, right? You're, you're just, you're just uh, taking the risk that you're right. You're sort of just betting that you have a good understanding of the market yeah. and the product and you're building something that's meaningful and valuable. But um, of course, that risk would still be there if you showed them an early sketch or something. I'm aware of that. But still, uh, just wondering, do you actually uh, retire features if you notice that not enough people use them or... How does that work in the product? That's such a great question. Uh, when you have a brand new product and you have a small customer base, you can you can get away with taking things away. Uh, as soon as you reach a certain size, the absolute numbers are so big. You know, at our current size, the absolute numbers are so big that if you know five percent of customers use something, it's still a lot of people, mm-hmm. and. Um, so from where we are now, shipping, I think once you once you get out of the very early phase of trying to figure out what what you know what the product should be and and reaching product market fit and so on, sh- shipping really is a one way street, and it's part of the risk that you take of mm-hmm. of betting on something that you know what we're going to have to probably live with this thing for the rest of this version of the product or. Uh, we're going to lose this um, free space in the interface forever if we put this thing here. So that's, I think that's actually a, a part of the risk and a, a part of the risk to really take seriously. Of course, we can, we can iterate on something. So if we release something and we find out that very few people use it, um, then there was still something that motivated us to do that project that we were trying to solve that we understood as being some kind of a problem or some kind of a struggle. So we could in the future shape a new project that ends up um, changing that part of the app because we've improved our understanding of what the problem really was, right? Or how to go about solving it. In which case we might be able to take that that thing that didn't work and, and turn it into something that works better. But it's true, uh, outright removing something is, is, is very rarely possible I, th- i really do i think it's better to actually just think of it as a one-way street and, and take it as part of the risk of, of making the bet mm-hmm. understood w- would would maybe 
putting out experimental features solve part of that problem? Or is that a stupid idea? I think um, I, I think I think you have to make the commitment because mm -hmm. if you put out the experimental feature, you're what, what is that really saying to customers? You know, mm -hmm. it, I, I get the it, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we don't we don't want to be in that position. We'd rather just take on the risk. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're now at risk. So that I think is the stage where we're entering the betting process, right? The yes. betting phase. So how does that work? Um. It's quite simple uh, in practice. It's mostly just changing the perspective, right? So um, the big shift here is we want more trade-offs to be made higher in the company. Very often what happens is the people who are at the leadership level of the company are basically saying yes to everything. Like, yes, that's a good idea. Put it on the backlog. Yeah, that's another one. Let's do that too. Oh, let's get to that as soon as we can, right? And what happens is you're saying yes to everything and then pushing that down to the teams. And then the teams are under a constant pressure to somehow fit everything together and get it all done as, as fast as possible. And of course, this leads to all kinds of problems. Uh, it leads to bad morale. It leads to technical debt. It leads to all kinds of problems. One of the biggest problems that you get out of that is a lack of strategic clarity. So uh, I, I'm actually starting to come to the belief that a lot of people who have the title product manager today are actually project managers mm -hmm. because they're being tasked with more work than there is time. And it's their job to juggle time and, and resources to try and somehow get it all done, even though it's not really possible. So you need you need to hire somebody then to to play this game of of Tetris to to try and squeeze everything together into a small box. So what we're trying to do with betting is we're trying to make the trade off higher in the organization. We want the people who who really control the resources to say what is important right now, and what is not important, and and what risks do we want to take, and and where do we want to put our time, and so the. This notion of being really deliberate about what is meaningful right now, and then and then scheduling a team to do that and only that. So a huge part of 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 maybe I'll try and, and, and put these points together that we've already touched on a little bit. So what makes a bet? So the first thing is when you're making a bet, you have a capped downside, as we talked about. The second thing is you have you're making a bet because you hope for some kind of a payoff. Right, so we've shaped the work, and we have a clear end in sight, and we think that at the end of this amount of time that we're betting, let's say the six weeks, that something good is going to come out of it that we can actually see in advance. But then there's the third point, which is that if you make a bet, you honor it. You know, there's a you 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 you'll get into trouble with people if you make a bet and then you walk away and you don't pay. You know, mm -hmm. so uh, what does it mean to honor the bet? Uh, it, it, in software, it means leave the team alone. Give them the work and set the clear expectations through the boundaries defined in the shaping of, of what it is and what it's not and, and what the end is like. And then leave them alone. Don't, don't, go, don't go to them and, and tug, tug at their shirt and say, oh, but I just need you to do this one thing. Or, you know, it'll be really quick. Just do this one thing, right? Um, every time that you interrupt the team, you of course lose the time for the interruption, but you also lose the 
you lose the the momentum that they had built up, and then you lose the time that it takes again to spin up again, and you lose the uh, uh, interaction between other people if they had all been available at the same time to help each other, right? So there's there's massive costs from 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 interruption. So betting is really about taking the resources that we have, the people who are available, and 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 lining them up, and then saying they're only going to do this one thing for the next six weeks. And so what, what would be the most valuable thing? Mm -hmm. And the way this actually happens is in practice through some fairly short conversations, you know, the, this uh, too, too often I hear kind of horror stories from, from teams where they have to have these, especially if they're using sprints, you know, then they have every two weeks, they have some kind of a meeting where they all have to decide what to do next. And sometimes they call it a grooming session or whatever. And these meetings can be four or five hour meetings with too many people involved and a lot of unclear discussion and, and they're just painful. Um, if you have, if you have shaped work that you're bringing to the table, so meaning someone has actually thought a lot about this work and you have a couple, a very small number of people who are actually in the position to make the decision because of where they sit in the organization. Then what you can have is a, is a, is a quite short, you know, maybe hour long discussion that is very, very dense and very meaningful uh, where all the questions that are raised have good answers. The work of, of defining the work is work. So often Unless you're creating a wireframe or 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 um, or implementing the view or you know making commits to the pull request, people think that you're not doing real work. But figuring out what to do is work, and it takes time. And very often, what happens is when we get into these these meetings to decide what to do, nobody was allowed to sort of go deep and actually figure out what what the right what is the right work. And that's what we've done in the shaping process. So by having that as an asset, we, we, that's an input to the betting table. Hmm. And, then, and then by having a small group who are the right people, we can have a very, very sort of potent, you know, intense conversation. And also, you know, the higher people are in the organization, the less of their time is available anyway. So you sort of have to be productive in less time. And that's, that's more or less what the betting table looks like. For us, it's, it's four people. And uh, it's Jason, David, the two, the two, you know, co-founders, uh, Jason CEO, David CTO, myself, uh, and and then Jeff, a, a very senior programmer, is very often there. And that way, we kind of represent both the customer-facing side, the technical side, and the um, sort of strategic side. All those things are brought together. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the assumption then is that the people who are involved in that betting table process, or you could just call it the betting table. Yeah, the people just the who are, who are table. at the betting table. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. they need to be able to understand, and um, they need to be able to understand the consequences of what they're deciding there. Right? They need to they need to be technical enough to understand or be able to judge whether that stuff will actually fit into a six week cycle. Right? Yes, and that should also. So they need to be able to judge that, and they also. Um, 
that needed to happen in the shaping process as well. So that's something I didn't mention earlier, but there is a step in the shaping work where if the, if the person who did the shaping was deeply, deeply technical, then, then this has already been part of the, this is already there in the work that's, that's coming to the bedding table. If, if it was more of a designer person who was leading the shaping work, they do need to pull a technical person in at some point during the mm -hmm. shaping to say, Hey, tell me where I'm wrong, you know? Um, or is this as feasible as I think it is, or are my assumptions correct about the interdependencies here and so on? Mm -hmm. So, but it, that's absolutely true. Um, there needs to be a, there, there is a judgment call there saying not, is this thing something we want to do? Is it strategically the right thing to spend the right time on? Is this the right time? So sometimes something can be the right thing, but it's not the right time based on maybe you did the exact same type of work in the last project and and it's going to be a dip in morale for people if they if they're doing a repetitive kind of work or maybe it's a really good idea but something else came up in some other corner that hasn't gotten attention in a long time or whatever so it might not be the right time and then the feasibility is of course is of course a key thing Mm -hmm. Okay. So my initial reaction would have been, uh, well, that's not a good idea because you're not involving the people who are actually doing the work. But you mentioned before that you're not determining the exact thing to be done. You're just shaping something that's then to be filled in by the actual team doing the work, right? So it's, yes. it's rough enough so that you can, uh, so that you, that you still don't feel bad about passing that to a team who then has to deliver it because they haven't committed to you that they're actually able to deliver this in some particular form. They just yes. expect it to do. Okay, understood. Are they allowed to say, uh, well, yeah, that was nice thinking, but it's not going to happen? Can they can they reject something and say, yeah, no, not doable? Or has that simply so. not happened before? I don't think so. That That's never happened. Um at the macro scale of this is the, sh this is what we want to do. This is the project. And then team, please go do it at the micro scale that happens very regularly though. So there might mm -hmm. be some aspect of the shaped project. And then once the team starts to actually work on it, they have, they have better information than anybody else had, right? Because mm -hmm. the amount of information you have up front is of course, very limited. So it can, it can happen quite often that the team gets involved and they say, you know what, this aspect of it, is not working the way that we thought it would, or it's not feasible the way that we imagined. We have this other idea. Let's go, let's take this other approach instead. Um, mm -hmm. But this is very rarely happening in one of the let's say pillars of the idea. You know, it's 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 it, it, it tends not. It's it's quite unusual for that to be something foundational to the concept. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, maybe to to conclude the shaping uh, phase discussion one one term you've mentioned a number of times is the appetite can you yeah. can you elaborate a bit on that yeah so the appetite is is uh just referring to to what maybe you know many listeners have heard before in the notion of fixed time variable scope so it's just a question of what is the fixed time for that variable scope and it's a it's a strategic question uh If we, if we start with an estimate, then we are committing ourselves to whatever our initial assumptions were about what the solution should be. You know, we come up with some sort of a design, then we put a number on it. We say, this is how long it will take. And then, and then we can immediately, too often, we immediately go into trying to do time management in order to figure out how to get that thing done. 
And what we want to do is we want to stay away from time management as much as possible and instead do scope management. And mm-hmm. scope management is design. So we want to say, if this thing, because of our strategic understanding of it, is only worth uh, this period of time, then we want to create a situation where everyone is making trade-offs in their design decisions so that we can come up with some kind of a scope that fits within that time box. So it's really about creating the forcing function. The appetite is a forcing function on the design process so that we make trade-offs in the design to arrive at something that, that can be done within that period of time. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes sometimes it's not possible. There are certain, you know, there are intrinsic sizes to certain things. If if you have to do XYZ in order for the functionality to perform, it may be that it's not possible to do it in less than a certain period of time. But if your appetite doesn't meet that that minimum amount of work to do the thing, then you don't do it because you say, well, that's what it takes, but strategically we're not interested in doing it, right? But m- in most cases, there is so many different ways to to attack a problem. And there are so many sort of levels of detail you can go into and things that you can, things that you can improve and things that you can not improve. And there are many, many trade-offs to make about, about sort of how far to go um, in which aspect of, of the concept. So this, this scoping thing is, there's a lot of latitude there and it's just, it's very important. This is where I think mo- this is our, our biggest uh, sort of secret weapon throughout the entire history of Basecamp is our ability to do this, to make mm-hmm. to make deep cuts and trade-offs in what's actually important about the design and then just build the things that are important. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so um, I'm just, I just assume that, um, you actually mentioned that before, you'll have a number of ideas um, in shaped up form or shaped form, um, and you only have uh, a limited budget in terms of time and effort and, and person hours that can be spent on the whole thing so you pick the best ones the ones that mm-hmm. have the most support um do you actually um do you actually attach a uh, a budget to each individual idea or are they all passed to the teams as a whole so is there is there a way if one thing takes a little less than the estimated amount of time can that be invested in the other or is everything um limited to exactly what you are what you were willing to invest for it yeah phrase differently is it do you is the is the investment that you that you sort of sign off is that a is that a a person day amount or is it just this is going to be in the next cycle yeah so we we keep this very very simple um either either the team has been given a project for the entire six weeks and then that's all they have to think about is Mm -hmm. is build this thing within that period and it should be done at the end and that's it or or we'll do a, a handful of smaller projects and then in the if we do the handful of smaller projects we call it the small batch occasionally we might specify this thing is worth three weeks and that thing is only worth one week in practice very often we'll in, in, we'll just we'll just give the three or four projects or whatever they are these small things to the team and say look we believe these things can all be done within six weeks You can mm-hmm. see, you, you can tell what that means, figure it out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Time management is, is very, very costly. So the more, the more that we can avoid time management by just using big time boxes 
and and then relying on the teams to self-manage their decisions for how to get it how to get it done the, the better off we all are mm -hmm. okay good so on to the final phase then or the last phase in the of the three which is the build phase right mm -hmm. what's special about that so the first thing with the build phase is as we mentioned before that the teams are figuring out what the work is within the boundary of what was shaped so they're not working off of a queue they're not they're not in this sort of code monkey grunt work role of of just pulling tickets and then completing the tickets i mean everybody knows why those things are bad it's not fun to just work off one ticket after the other this is is, is not good for morale it's also not good for the outcome of the actual functionality and 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 way that the work integrates you know this goes back to this analogy of the paper shredder if you shred the project into tasks and you kind of hope that they all glue together in the end back into the into what you thought but but usually that's not the case because if if the definition of success is is checking off the task that's a very different definition than saying the definition of success is the project as shaped works in a meaningful way so what we want is for the teams to discover their own tasks and capture their own tasks and manage their own tasks but we also want them to take responsibility for thinking about how all the work integrates together into a working whole so they're really thinking about the whole and not just executing parts and saying that that how it all weaves weaves together is somebody else's problem so that's a huge aspect of it and so uh, when the team starts to build we set an expectation that something should be live and clickable. Something should do something on a staging server very early. So let's say by the end of the first week or, or, or at the very latest at the beginning of the second week. And in order to do that, the teams are going to, the designer is going to produce some design that isn't final. So the, the, the level of fidelity that the designer delivers, so to say, to the, to the programmers or, or commits to the code is, is much lower. We don't need to have the final colors and the final layout and everything in order for a programmer to implement something. All the programmer really needs are the affordances, the endpoints. Uh, they need to know, is all of this happening in one form or is this happening across multiple steps? right um and if it's happening whatever form it's happening in what are the components and and how are those components wired together that gives the programmer all the constraints they need to figure out how to wire the controller and what the model needs to be behind that and 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 so on and and, and connect those things so we're encouraging the team to to make it work before they make it beautiful and so there's going to be a little bit of design, a little bit of programming, and then those things are going to be integrated together. And it's all going to happen around some specific sort of small core piece of functionality that's interesting to see first. So of course, it's not interesting to see whatever, you know, username authentication first, because this is a problem that's been solved a million times. It's not telling you anything about the domain. You're not, you're not, touching any of the things that are interdependent in the problem that are going to help you to feel confident that the feature is coming together. Uh, so they're picking off something that is small, something that is central to the problem, 
um, but also something that is not so deeply entangled with other things that they can actually, you know, click on it and get it to do something um, um, quickly, something that's isolated enough that, that they can make progress on it. So that's, that's how they get started. And as they work, the, 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 this, we've been talking about filling in the space within the boundary of the shaped work. And we can think of this like a wilderness or like, like a territory that hasn't been explored before. And so as the team actually starts to look at the existing code and, 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 and spike out approaches to some of the things that were shaped and put a little bit of design together, they start to learn how the existing system works, how the solution is going to come together, what's going to work and what's not. And, and they figure out sort of what the actual work is in the implementation side. And so this process, um, as they, as they walk the territory, they can start to create a kind of map of there's this concern over there, just like when you're doing coding, you know, and when you first start to code something, you don't see how to factor it into separate, uh, whether it's, you know, classes or, or methods, or, you know, if you're working functionally, just how, how do you pull this apart and untangle it into different responsibilities? You can't see that immediately. But after you have started to pull on the pull on the on the thing from different directions, you can feel you know when I pull on this piece, that other piece comes along. Versus when I pull on this piece, it 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 just comes away by itself, right? So as you learn where the interdependencies are in the work, you can start to sort of map out the boundaries between things, and you can sort of decouple and isolate things from each other. And what what the team is doing is they're 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 identifying slices of the project that they can complete front end and back end together. So where can they integrate front end and back end and then have a whole sort of area of the map that they have identified that they can then say, this is solved, this is integrated, you can click on it and it does something and the universe of problems that we need to solve has shrunk. So that's this kind of activity that they're doing and we call that, um, we call those those separate pieces of work that can be where front and back end can be integrated and, and that piece can be completed sort of orthogonal to the rest of the project. We call those scopes mm -hmm. and we call this activity mapping out the scopes. So they're doing that. And the, 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 the last piece of building is how do they actually show progress and figure out where they stand with regard to these scopes. And here's where we, we use the metaphor of the hill. So Every piece of work that you take on, even if it's something that you, you know, are quite sure that there's some solution to it, you don't actually know what the final form of the solution looks like until you start to, to get involved and start to work on it. And this, this beginning to, to, to connect it, this, you know, is the API where I think it is? Does it connect with the library the way that I expect? Is the existing code where I think it is? Oh no, there's also this other module over here that has a dependence with that. Uh-huh. Okay, right. All these things. This is this is compared to walking uphill. As you're going up a hill, you can't quite see where the top is if it's a steep hill, right? Mm -hmm. you, 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 but then but then eventually you reach a point where you're standing at the top of the hill and you're like, okay, look, I've I've got this piece working, that piece working. I've seen all the existing code. And now, now you can see down the other side and you say, I know the approach, I've seen everything, I've touched the real code, and now it's, it's more like I have to tighten a screw here and I have to tighten this and I have to wire that together 
but there's no unknowns anymore. It's all certainties. And everything's so a, downhill from the everything's ex- downhill from here. <laughs> exactly, <sorry. laughs> exactly. Everything's downhill from here. Mm-hmm. So there's a v- major qualitative difference between these two phases, and every scope has this. So what we want the teams to be able to do is report on where they are in terms of uphill and downhill on each scope that they're working on. And this tells us something very important about the risks. If we get to the end of of a six-week project, and let's say we're in week five, and there's a bunch of work that still isn't finished, let's say a little bit too much work is still unfinished, but all of that work is plotted on the downside of the hill somewhere either immediately at the top at the very top of the hill or you know maybe down toward the bottom of the hill where there's just a little little bit left to do before it's fully executed if that's where the work is we're not going to feel bad about th- reinvesting uh you know throwing another week or another two weeks at the project by default we don't do this right as i mentioned before with the bedding and and the the circuit mm-hmm. breaker but we when we consider whether to do it or not we would we would lean towards saying yes if all the work is downhill on the other hand if some important piece of the project isn't done and it's not only not done but it's uphill that means that there might not even be a solution for that mm-hmm. so this is a totally different category of risk so uh the team now has a, a way to communicate where the work stands in terms of known and unknown but then they can use this as a feedback mechanism for themselves to make sequencing decisions. So the team, because they're self-managing and they have this sort of big period of time of the six weeks to fill in the shaped work, they need to make good decisions about which problems to solve in which order. And what the team is going to do is they're going to prioritize getting anything that's, that's important to this project over the hill earlier. So for example, there might be a few very important key pieces of functionality to a project. And rather than getting the first scope over the hill, and then and then after it gets over the hill, completely finishing it to final execution, they'll often actually let some work stand at the top of the hill and say, okay, you know what, that's good enough. It's not done yet, but we've isolated it. We've mapped it out as a separate scope. It's over the top of the hill. We'll come back and finish the execution later. Let's go turn to this other problem that's completely at the bottom of, uh, that hasn't climbed the hill at all and gain mm-hmm. more certainty in that, right? So then they reach a point where maybe by the, you know, the second or third week of the project, the, the most important things are all over the hill. And then they'll kind of switch modes and say, okay, let's just execute, 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 and get all the downhill work done. And this allows them to reserve capacity for the unknown. Mm-hmm. So first, there's a question of identifying known versus unknown. And the second question is, we have to reserve capacity for the things we don't understand because they could very well take multiples of how long we think they're going to take. And then the team does that by sequencing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's assume they, um, well, the easy case would be they they finish they finish some form, some possibly slightly differently scoped form of the original Mm-hmm. Uh, shaped uh, project that was supposed to do. Everybody's happy. Everything's fine. They do some little finishing work in the in the two weeks after that. Um, that's sort of the easy the easy path. What happens if um, if things go wrong? If they if they simply 
at the end of the six weeks haven't delivered it. Do you table it, reschedule it later? Do you set up a, what do you do with that? Because you've done a lot of work and there's, you know, there's a lot of effort invested. I know about the sunk cost fallacy, but still I'm wondering, do you simply throw everything away or what do you do if something does not meet your, if you, if you don't win your, win your bet? Right. So what, what we now have is a pretty rich tool set for a debrief. Because now, if project goes poorly and something goes wrong and it doesn't, it's not finished at the end of the time that we bet on, now we can have a conversation where we can say, first of all, was the problem in, in what we shaped or was the problem in the performance of the team that was filling in the shaped work? Those are very different things. Mm-hmm. You might look back at that work and say, look, this was very clearly shaped and we set clear boundaries on it, but maybe this, this programmer who was working on it completely um, went on a yak shave and, 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 and they had clear boundaries, but they didn't respect those boundaries or they didn't make good judgment calls about how to fill it in. And, and then you have maybe a performance question, right? Um, mm-hmm. or, or who knows, maybe there's something personal going on with the person and it was just a, a very short-term performance problem, right? That could happen. It could also happen that you say, you know what, look, the team made every, they made very, very good decisions. Um, but the way that we shaped the work, nobody could have anticipated, you know, the, the, this, this thing that we, that we left out of the shaping or it could be, you know what, we actually shaped that work in a rush. We didn't think about it very well, very much, very deeply. And we were kind of busy with some other things. And then at the last moment before the betting table, we kind of quickly whip, whipped at this idea together and we hoped it would be fine. So already then we, we have uh, very different sort of next steps, right? If, if the work was shaped really well and it was a performance issue, then, then you have some sort of a follow-up to, to, to address the performance issue. If the work was not properly shaped and you have feedback to the shaper, right? And, and then that's where the learning process happens. If the if the work didn't get finished, um, but all of the work that did get finished was done well, and everything that was finished to what was shaped happened as expected, so the performance was good, the shaping was good, but somehow it still didn't get done, then we have the language of uphill and downhill to 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 talk about our risks. Mm-hmm. You know this this downhill work is a little bit like you're at the end of assembling the Ikea furniture and there's there's four screws in your hand and you look down and you see four holes in in the in the in the chair mm-hmm. right and you say okay no problem right um if 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 it feels like that then uh then you can you can uh throw an extra couple weeks at the project and everyone can feel very confident that it's going to go well on the other hand, if you're at the if you you're at the end of assembling the IKEA furniture and there's some piece of wood that <laughs> the cabinet's <laughs> finished, but there's a piece of wood lying there and you don't know where it belongs, then you say, "Okay, we have a deeper problem here, right?" And then you I hide it and of, don't tell anyone. Yes, exactly, right. <laughs> so then, then um, or or you know, there's a piece of functionality that's that's missing, and no one actually can see exactly how to go about putting it into place. Uh, then you have an uphill piece of work that's left over. And if that's the case, it would be very risky to reinvest. Um, so then, then what we can do is we can either say to ourselves, well, um, we could hold a very, very sort of emergency shaping session in the two week in the, in the cool down, 
to see if we can figure out this problem. And if we can shape a solution to it, then we, we could feel comfortable betting again uh, a certain number of weeks on, on finishing the work. Or we could say, um, this problem is too scary, or this unknown is too fundamental. But we had a case like this once where there was a there was a piece of the design that we just assumed would the designer would solve, and we didn't shape it. And when it came time for the designer to solve it, it was like, you know what? I don't think there's any good answer to this. I can't come up with anything that seems to work well. And then we also looked at it and we said, you know what? This is this is a hole in the project that is sinking the project, right? It can't survive this hole. So if that's the case, then we're going to have to really deeply come up with a different approach. So then this sort of goes back, not in any sort of, there's no conveyor belt or cue that now the shaping has to think about this, but rather it goes back into the field of shaping where um, if someone who's responsible for shaping feels that um, it's, they're still interested in it and, and they're optimistic about finding some solution, then they might pursue it. Or if everyone feels totally stumped and there's just no no path in sight and you just set it aside and you do something that that is is better shaped that's totally unrelated in the next cycle and you wait for a for a, a eureka in the bathtub one day right or for mm-hmm. some new information to come across you that 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 changes things or or whatever right mm-hmm. okay well good i think we got through the three phases we're well above our time budget which is perfectly fine but i think we need to wrap up so uh, obviously we're going to link to the uh, to the book itself mm. uh, which has tons more information than we could cover in, in this in this amount of time um, which is great is there anything are there any final words of advice that you want to leave our listeners with i think the the most important thing is to think more deeply about the work and so what we want to do is get out of this situation where we're on constant time pressure and 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 trying to rush to finish a task and instead reverse it and and create a situation where we can think more deeply about is this the right work and do i know what i need to do or do i not know what i need to do and how important is it and and how strategically meaningful is it all of these techniques are about reframing that and being able to have to see as i mentioned before that figuring out what the work is is work And if we can change that shift in our mindset, especially at a leadership level, we can carve out more time for people to think. And by giving them more time, they can produce much, much better results. And on the second order, it means less tech debt, less things that don't make sense when we go back into the code and and kind of a, a firmer, more solid foundation that we're building upon all the time. This is a really good place to be. And I think this should be our goal. Perfect last words. Thank you so much, Ryan, for the time. Thanks to our listeners for listening. And uh, yeah, thanks. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot.